You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, church. Today's scripture is taken from Psalms 110, verses 1 to 7. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the white earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. A very good morning, everyone. The Lord bless you. I hope you've been enjoying the service so far. I've been so blessed, even through the worship, uh, through the update on East Timor and and even the upcoming uh, announce, uh, announcement about the upcoming Easter service and the registration. Looking forward to all of that. Now, uh, I just also want to give a special welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. Uh, we would very much like to get connected with you. Uh, so would you use the QR code below and uh, we will get, into, uh, get in touch with you shortly. All right, uh, last week, I mentioned that uh, last Sunday was a significant Sunday in our church's history. Well, similarly, today is a historic Sunday as well. On this Sunday, one year ago, we started worshipping exclusively over live stream. So yes, we have been doing this for a whole year now, right? So how do you feel about that? Well, in any case, uh, we are going to be restarting our physical services at Dorset in just two weeks' time, God willing. I hope you remember the two uh, priorities that I mentioned last week. Priority number one, we must seize the opportunity to gather. And priority number two, we must continue the SSE, the Sunday service experience in homes. Now, I hope that that's catching on uh, with you. And on top of these two priorities, I also want us to keep one perspective in mind. All right, so as we begin this new season, Remember this, on any given Sunday, Agape Baptist Church is both, is both the physical as well as the virtual. Let me say it again. On any given Sunday, Agape Baptist Church is both the physical and the virtual. Now, Agape Baptist Church consists of both those who are on-site and in homes. All right, we must not begin thinking that you know, those gathered at Dorset are the real Agape Baptist Church, while those at home are merely the observers, right? Nor must we begin thinking that those of us in homes are the real Agape Baptist Church, whereas those of us at Dorset, uh, where, you know, with our distancing and our masks and all that, uh, that they are simply just part of the studio setup, right? We can't think like that. Both groups each week make up Agape Baptist Church. So keep that in mind because things will be different as we move into this 
new phase and as we make different adjustments to engage both those who are on-site as well as those who are in homes. But nevertheless, I am confident that we will adjust and also that improvements will be made along the way so that we can all engage better. Alright, so finally just remember Agape Baptist Church is both the physical and the virtual. Alright, so with that, uh, let's give our attention to today's sermon. Today, we are on the second part of our sermon series leading up to Easter Sunday. Again, uh, we are going to be looking at different Messianic Psalms in this season. Uh, Messianic, a Messianic Psalm is a psalm that clearly has something to do with Jesus, the Messiah. And as we look at these psalms, we want to behold the beauty and the significance of Jesus' victory through the cross. Today we look at Psalm 110. Now Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. And you might think because Psalm 110 is the most quoted, you know, it should be like super relevant to us. But as you heard the scripture reading earlier, perhaps you might have felt like Psalm 110 has actually very little to do with you, right? There are no commands to us. There are no instructions for us. The psalm doesn't seem to address us at all. And the psalm seems only focused on this king. But here's the thing. If you feel horrified by what's happening in Myanmar, you're going to, feel, you're going to find that this psalm is so relevant. If you are enraged hearing about the treatment that Early Rain Covenant Church has been receiving for many years now, along with other churches in China, in the Middle East, uh, even in India, North Korea, you know, if, you've, if you have felt helpless and insufficient as you hear about things like allowing lay, uh, men to enter into ladies' restrooms and locker rooms, or even hearing about things like allowing babies to be legally aborted upon birth, no, or if you have felt sick to the stomach at the influence of false teachers and abusive leaders within the church, then Psalm 110 is going to be so precious and so necessary for you. Psalm 110 speaks into the injustice of this world, no matter how big, no matter how small. Psalm 110 is hope in a world that is spiraling in moral depravity. Psalm 110 is fuel for faith as we witness and perhaps even experience persecution of many kinds. Psalm 110 is God's response to a disordered and depraved world. Now this psalm has two parts to it. All right? Each part begins with God speaking. And each time He speaks, a command is given. Let me bring us through the psalm and... Lead us to each command. So here is command number one. Wait. David begins uh, Psalm 110 by setting the scene. The Lord says to my Lord. Now the first capitalized Lord refers to Yahweh, the God of Israel. The second Lord is Adonai, which refers to a kingly figure. And so at the heart of God's response to the disorder and depravity that we see in the world, at the heart of His plan is a king. In the New Testament, 
the identity of this king is made clear. David wasn't writing about himself or about his descendants. David was writing about someone higher than himself, so much so that David himself addresses this king as my Lord. And again, sitting at the right hand of God is the highest privilege. The New Testament resounds that there is only one who is so superior, there is only one who is so worthy, and that is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the King that Psalm 110 is talking about. So welcome to another Psalm of the Saviour. Well, what does God say to this King? He says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Essentially, God is commanding King Jesus to wait. Let me break down the following verses and show you three aspects to this waiting. Here's the first. Wait with honour. God says to the king, sit at my right hand. Now, sitting at the right hand of God is the place, the position of honour. Now, if God had asked him to stand at his right hand, it would just mean that this king is a servant, I mean a very important servant, but just a servant nevertheless. But to be invited to sit beside God himself is to enjoy a closeness, a familiarity with God. It is as if God was saying, we are of the same kind, you know, so let's share the same stage, let's share the same platform together. And again, Jesus is the king seated at the right hand of God. He is the one seated in this place of honour. And as he now waits, we too wait with him. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are seated with God the Father in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As the body of Christ, we are seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. All our interests, all our fears, all our concerns, our persecutions, our needs, our sufferings, all of these are represented in the person of Jesus Christ as He sits at the right hand of the Father with honour. So as Jesus waits, we wait as well. And as He waits with honour, we too must wait with honour. And what that means is that as we experience injustice, as we see the chaos of this world, as we see good being called evil and evil being called good, waiting with honour means that we must keep our heads held high. We are at the right hand of the Father. It means we do not lose hope. And since we are at the right hand of the Father, we have the Father's ear, so we pray. We pray and pray until His kingdom comes, until His will is done. And we wait until then with honour. So that's the first aspect to waiting. Now we come to the second aspect, wait with expectation. In the last verse of, uh, sorry, in the last line of verse 1, God ends His first command with these words, Until I make your enemies your footstool. Now God is telling the king to wait for God to fulfill his promise. Now what is this promise? It is the promise to bring all his enemies 
under the feet of the king. Now, whenever David writes about his enemies, uh, especially in the Psalms, he has a certain kind of person in mind. David's enemies are those who hate him. Uh, these are the people who want him dead. They want to entrap him. They want to ruin him. And they also hate David's God. They hate this God's ways. They hate this God's righteousness. Instead, they love what is wicked. Now, Jesus, during his time on earth, he faced many such enemies. And today, he still has many such enemies. And here, God promises to make these enemies a footstool for Jesus. But what does it mean to make someone a footstool? Well, here's a picture. This image is based on Joshua's victory over a coalition of enemy nations in Joshua chapter 10. It's a picture of victory, of subjugation, of dominion over all those who are wicked, unjust, and workers of chaos. Now, Jesus is waiting at the right hand of God for God to fulfill His promise, for God to fulfill that promise of placing all His enemies under His feet like His footstool. And Jesus waits with expectation. Now, this brings me to the last aspect of waiting, which is to wait with patience. Verse 2 begins with this declaration. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Now, the scepter is a symbol of authority and kingship. Zion is the city of David, the royal city of David. Zion is a city on a hill, and it is where King David ruled all of Israel from. In the Bible, Zion is a smaller city within Jerusalem, but many times Jerusalem itself is also called Zion. And so God has chosen Zion, Jerusalem, as the place to signify the authority of His kings. And we remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, coming to the people of Zion who address Him as the Son of David. But even so, the king has to wait. Jesus has to wait. The king is called to rule in the midst of your enemies. When David was king, he had to rule in the midst of numerous enemies. The Amalekites, Amorites, Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites, and of course, the Philistines. Now, these enemies of the king, now they were all still around as David ruled, and they were there with their hatred. Similarly, verse 3 says, Your people will offer themselves on the day of your power. Now, there is a future tense to this verse. The king still waits for his own people to come to him fully and freely. But here's the thing. There is a day that has been set. On the day of the king's power, as it says in this verse, his people will come to him with freedom and will be with him, and his enemies will be no more. And so the king waits and waits with patience. Acts chapter 17 tells us that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. That 
is the day of the king's power. The date has been set. The king is waiting. But the day will come. And so we too, we must wait with patience. We must not lose heart because the promised day is near. It will come very soon. So these are the three aspects to waiting that we see in this psalm. But the thing is, waiting is difficult. Waiting is so difficult, especially when you are longing and seeking justice. On one hand, you might give up and you might fall into despair. On the other hand, you might lose patience and begin taking matters into your own hands. But here's an encouragement for us as we wait. You are not alone in your waiting. You are not alone in your waiting. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that after Jesus had gone to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. Jesus has been waiting more than 2,000 over years for this promised day of the King's power to come. So people, wait with Him. Wait with honour, wait with expectation, wait with patience. This is the first command. Here's the second. Command number two, act. As we come to this second half of Psalm 110, God begins to speak a second time. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. Now God is about to make a promise and this promise is so certain that God emphasizes His unchanging nature and faithfulness. But behind this promise is a call to action. So let me break down the following verses and show you two aspects to God's call to action. First, he calls his king to act with purpose. Here's God's promise. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God promises that the king would also be a priest. Now, a priest is a mediator. He stands between God and man and he lives to make peace between them. He does this by making sacrifices for sin on man's behalf, but he also teaches God's ways and proclaims God's blessings to man on God's behalf. However, kings in Israel could not be priests. Kings were supposed to come from the tribe of Judah, but priests came from the tribe of Levi. Now, you could only belong to one tribe. And again, being a, uh, a king was a full-time responsibility. And similarly, being a priest was a full-time job. I mean, you, you, you could not be both priest and king. And so being both at the same time was impossible. But the reality is that the kings of Israel, they did do some priestly things. So for example, when King David uh, brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, he offered sacrifices every six steps. Now that is something a priest is supposed to do. Uh, again, when King Solomon uh, uh, exercised his authority over the priesthood, 
uh, what he did was that he removed a priest from his position and appointed another person to take his place. Throughout the Old Testament, the kings were expected to execute justice and righteousness. They were expected to know God's law. That wasn't just for the priest to know. The king had to know it as well. And they were expected to keep the nation from falling into idolatry. Now, how is it that these kings of Israel were allowed to do such priestly things? Now, the answer is in the second half of God's promise in verse 4. David and the, and the kings after him were not priests after the order of the tribe of Levi. They were priests after the order of Melchizedek. But who is Melchizedek? Well, very little is known about him. Uh, what we know is that Melchizedek was alive during Abraham's time, and that's a long time before David. Uh, we know that Melchizedek was an important man because Father Abraham, the most, uh, uh, the most uh, honored and most revered person in the Jewish tradition, he was the one who paid tribute to Melchizedek and not the other way around. Now, we also know that Melchizedek was a priest as he offered sacrifices on behalf of Abraham to God. But another thing is that Melchizedek was also a king. He was the king of a place called Salem. Now, Salem was a city that David would one day go on to conquer. But by that time, it was no longer known as Salem, but it was known as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, David made Zion his royal city. And so as David took his throne uh, over Israel from Jerusalem, he continued the legacy of Melchizedek, the first king, the original king of Salem. David became a priest king like Melchizedek. But how did David continue Melchizedek's legacy as priest king? Hebrews 7 gives us a clue. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of, pre of peace. As priest king, David would be a champion of righteousness on the earth and a champion for making peace with God. And so as we come back to Psalm 110, we see that God calls his king to also be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this priestly role, it gives him purpose. The priest king must mediate between God and man. He must seek righteousness on the earth and he must seek peace between God and man. And this is the purpose behind the actions of the priest-king. Similarly, we too are called to function as priest-kings. Jesus is the ultimate priest-king after the order of Melchizedek. And as his followers, we are called a royal priesthood. We are simultaneously both kings and priests. But we are not priests after the tribe of Levi. Like Jesus, we are priests after the tribe and the order of Melchizedek. 
So this means that our purpose is to be champions of righteousness here on the earth. We must stand up for what is right and what is true. And as far as it is up to us, we must not let injustice prevail in the world around us. We must address unrighteousness, beginning with our own lives and then in the lives of our home and, and in our families and then in the life of the church and then in the world around us. But our purpose is not only to be a champion of righteousness, but to be a champion of peace as well. We are to seek peace between God and man. We are to stand in the gap. We are to proclaim the death and the resurrection of Jesus to those around us. And we are to pray for the unrepentant that they might be made right with God. This is how we, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, our priest king, this is how we are to act because we share in His purpose. Now to the second aspect of God's call to action, it is this, act with passion. We come to verse 5 which says, The Lord is at your right hand. In verse 1, the king was at God's right hand, but now God is the one at the king's right hand. What has happened here is that as the priest-king acts in accordance to God's purposes, God is now with him. God will be the king's strength, his power, his authority, and his victory. Psalm 110 continues, He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Earlier in verse 3, we heard about the day of the king's power. Well, verse 5 tells us that this will also be the day of the king's wrath. Now, wrath is a passionate word. Wrath is very different from a very uh, logical and cold and indifferent, stoic assessment of what is right and wrong. The king experiences wrath. Why? Because he hates injustice. Because he absolutely detests wickedness. But we also see the passion of the king in his zeal to establish the righteousness of God everywhere. Earlier in verse 2, we saw that the king emerged from Zion, from Jerusalem. But the king is not satisfied just to establish God's righteousness in Jerusalem. As we see in the slide again, he brings this righteousness to bear on uh, other kings and other kingdoms, upon other nations and over the whole wide earth. But how will he do this? How will he establish righteousness? He will do this by shattering the kings that defy God. He will do this by executing judgment against the wicked and the unjust. He will bring furious punishment for sin everywhere until the nations are filled with corpses. Now these corpses are of men and women who thought that they could get away with evil. They thought that they could oppress the weak and the defenseless, that they could take advantage of the foreigner, that they could persecute the household of the living, one, of the living God. Now these are the ones 
who constantly assured themselves and others saying, there is no God in heaven. Let us do whatever wickedness we please. Now, as the priest king destroys them across the face of the earth, he will satisfy the wrath of God against the wicked and he will establish everlasting peace between God and man. And he is so passionate for this cause, for this purpose, that what it says is that he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. As this priest king goes from kingdom to kingdom, from nation to nation, all across this wide earth, he will only pause momentarily to quench his thirst. That's the only break that he will take. Now this shows his eagerness, his zeal, his passion to establish God's righteousness upon the earth. And therefore, at the end of the day, he will lift up his head in victory and triumph. The priest king of God will act with passion. So at the right time, the king will be commanded to act, to act with purpose and to act with passion. Even as we ourselves, as we work towards justice and towards righteousness now, we must be mindful that it is not we who will finally rid the earth of wickedness. That honor belongs to Jesus, our priest king. He will bring about righteousness on the earth and establish per perfect peace with God. And until that appointed day, we wait with Him. We wait with honor, with expectation, and we wait with patience. But you know, there is one more enemy that seems to have been overlooked. What about Satan, the enemy behind all enemies? What about Satan, the father of all lies and the instigator of all injustice? Will Satan, the lover of chaos and wanton violence, will he get his due? Now, I believe that this psalm actually says, yes. In verse 1, God promises, he makes this promise to the king. He says that all his enemies would become his footstool. Now, if you remember that picture it, it brings across the idea, you know, of the king's foot crushing his enemy's head. And that takes us back to the Garden of Eden where God made this promise that one day the offspring of Eve would crush Satan's head and Satan will strike his heel. Now the word that is translated as head, Satan's head, is the word rosh. All right, the word Rosh. And that word appears at the end of Psalm 110 in verse 6, which says, He will shatter the Rosh over the wide earth. Now, this, has been, this word has been translated as chiefs or headmen in the ESV that we we're reading from earlier. But this verse should actually give us such a picture of Jesus, the offspring of Eve and the true priest king, stamping out all of Satan's influence across the earth and finally shattering his wicked skull under his feet. 
And this final victory will be a victory that Jesus, our priest king, will share with us. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, you know, we, we have become so desensitized, so numb to the injustice that is happening all around us that we are no longer aware of how angry we are at a world that is so messed up. That we've forgotten how painful it was when we first experienced injustice, whether personally or whether vicariously through the news, for example. And we've lost touch with that God-given desire to utterly destroy the one who is responsible, the one who is behind it, uh, behind all of it. People, Satan will be crushed under our feet on the day of the king's power, on the day of the king's wrath. And this day comes very soon. Now, how do I know this? Because Satan has already struck the heel of the priest king. Jesus was crucified by wicked men in the greatest mistrial of the universe. If you read the gospel accounts of how the religious leaders connived and schemed and slandered and brought false charges against Jesus while colluding with the likes of King Pilate and King Herod, you would be sick to the stomach and furious on Jesus' behalf. But behind all this scheming and plotting is Satan. He, as the self-proclaimed prince over the wide earth, he sought to have Jesus put to death and he succeeded. And this was the greatest act of injustice ever seen, where sinners played the role of judge, jury, and executioner over the perfectly righteous one, where the creature subjected the creator to their own version of justice, where violent men laid filthy, blood-soaked hands on the pure, righteous person, of Jesus. Satan succeeded in murdering the righteous judge of all the earth. But yet, that was only but a strike to Jesus' foot. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. You see, justice demands that Jesus' unlawful execution must be reversed. Righteousness demands that those who miscarry justice, they must be the ones who are executed instead. And so Jesus was raised from the dead and raised to the right hand of God, and soon He will return to make things right. People, the injustice of the cross is the guarantee that justice is coming. The injustice of the cross is the guarantee that justice is coming. His mercy then guarantees His judgment to come. Wickedness will end. Injustice will be purged with wrath. Satan will be crushed under our feet. So people, have you experienced injustice? Listen to this. You are not alone. Jesus has experienced injustice as well. Are you waiting for justice to be done? 
Yet again, brothers and sisters, you are not alone. Jesus is waiting with you. Or are you working hard for the cause of justice on this earth? Well, press on. Whoever you might be, press on. Jesus will soon return and He will join you and He will complete this work that you have been doing. Jesus, our priest king, He will bring an end to injustice. Would you join your hearts with mine and let's come before the Lord in prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg